0: Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now, we all have aches and pains now and then, and sometimes this can be a sign of something minor. Maybe someone did the marathon yesterday. Great job if you did. And sometimes it can be a sign of something bigger, like arthritis. Now, exercise can help to keep muscles strong, But we can't just replace all of the bones in our body, and the wear and tear of a life well-lived can catch up with us someday. How to keep that from happening too soon and what to do when the pain sets in? Well, that's where our guest today comes in. Dr. Kieran Vedada is a sports medicine specialist at Straub Clinic and Hospital. He's in the studio here to share his expertise in the diagnosis and management of musculoskeletal pains. That means joint pains in the elbows and knees and hips and neck and mid to low back. He's here live in the studio, and we're going to start our conversation today. And congratulations to all those who did do the marathon. And if your joints ache and pain you today, you have a good reason for it, but we're going to tell you about how to fix it. As always, our show is your show. You can join us at any time at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. Vidata, welcome to The Body Show.
1: Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, we are definitely happy to have your expertise here in the islands. And you've been here just for a few months, but already incredibly busy. Lots of people like to go outside, do a lot of activity, enjoy the year-round wonderful weather. Tell me, what is the most common sort of joint problem or body problem that you see in your practice?
1: For me, I would have to say shoulders. Shoulders. You know, shoulder yeah, troubles. Just, just the kind of activities that all of our patients are doing. They're out there swimming, paddling, some sort of repetitive overhead or even underhand activity. And so I see a lot of rotator cuff, actually.
0: So how would someone know the difference between, hey, my shoulder hurts because maybe I'm doing too much activity versus my shoulder hurts because maybe I'm not doing enough activity? Mm-hmm. How do we know when it goes from this is a minor problem, I can stretch it out, to this is a bigger deal.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, that's a great question. And I often try to get to the bottom of that kind of thinking with my patients. The thing is, it's so individualized that it's really hard to give a blanket of response for that's going to apply to everybody. So one thing I do tell my patients is that, you know, you know your pain threshold. You know what what does what and when you overdo things to a certain degree. But if you find that you're either A, reaching for that Tylenol bottle or that Advil bottle more often than you usually do, and it's something that you're relying on to do your activities of daily living. You know, that's kind of like a, a big term there, your daily living activities, so including bathing, dressing, getting to work, driving, you know, things that you have to do. So if you find that those activities are starting to get limited, you might be in a situation where things are kind of getting out of hand and we need to establish a diagnosis before there's a snowball effect and things worsen.
0: And that's a really important point. Establish a diagnosis. Because mm-hmm. I know in a lot of situations, people will say, well, you know, my shoulder hurts or my back hurts. I'm going to take a bunch of ibuprofen. And if it gets better, great. And if not, well, I'll just keep going about those activities of daily living we talk about. Mm-hmm. And maybe it'll go and go away eventually. And Often it doesn't. At what point if somebody, well, let's say somebody just, you know, maybe does regular activity during the day, nothing real dramatic, they're not a competitive swimmer or paddler, but they start to have some shoulder discomfort. If it gets better when they take some Tylenol or ibuprofen in a week or so, probably not a big deal. Mm -hmm. How long would be too long?
1: So I would say... Roughly, like for a muscle strain, for example, two to three weeks, you would expect things to get better. If it's a joint sprain or a ligament sprain, where you're you're damaging a little more than just a, a you know a light activity-based type of uh, mechanism, I would say again three to four weeks. And the thing is, you know, you really have to pay attention to the direction it's going in. So usually, when you have an acute injury, you have significant pain the days following that injury pain can escalate to a certain degree and you're mod- you're supposed to modify your activity accordingly. So even even with over the counter medications and icing, I always tell my patients that, you know, first off, that pain has a really important function.
0: What is that function?
1: So it's telling you that you need to avoid the activities that are painful. And as silly as that sounds to say, it's actually a very important point that people need to understand. So even swelling, for example, that has a function of limiting the range of motion of that injured body part so that it can actually get the adequate rest and heal. So the pain and the swelling are natural mechanisms by which your body protects you from yourself. And so if we take anti-inflammatories the second something happens and ice it and just kind of keep keep using that body part, you're putting yourself in a situation where you can make a small injury Worsen and become something that needs, you know, much bigger intervention than it would have if you kind of took it easy.
0: So you might just take so much ibuprofen you feel like Superman, correct? And then go injure yourself again without realizing it because you don't have that pain response. Correct. Pain being your body saying, "Cut that out! Don't do
1: it." Exactly. And we're supposed to listen. You're supposed to listen.
0: Now, if it's a daily activity. That you need to do And you just You have to be able to Get up and go to the bathroom Or you Mm -hmm. have to be able To do something Then taking Anti-inflammatory medicine To help you to do Your daily activities Okay Okay If you need it to live Sure Mm -hmm. Temporarily You can do that But if it's I'm going to go ahead And I know Every time I go golfing I get bad shoulder pain So I'm going to take A whole bunch of ibuprofen Before I golf So that I don't feel Shoulder pain You might be actually Tearing things And Mm -hmm. injuring it And not getting The pain response So you don't really that it's happened mm-hmm. until the day or so later when that medicine wears off and now you can't move your arm. That's correct. What are some of the common things that can cause rotator cuff injuries?
1: So the classic mechanism injury is a repetitive overhead activity. So it could be tennis, it could be golfing not so much with the with the rotator cuff. You usually see more of an elbow problem with that. Um, but swimmers get a lot of rotator cuff dysfunction. Um really anything that involves, you know, a lot of people who work in retail and, and end up having to even hang clothes up repetitively, that alone can do it. So there's so many different reasons for it. And, uh, you know, some of the assessments that, that can be easily done and uh, lead to a at least a, the first step in treatment is simply even just looking at someone's posture and their baseline mechanics. Because there's this concept called upper crossed posture where you know everyone you know people have that forward rounded type of hyperextended neck. It's it's something that we see because of the increased use of computers. Sure. In almost any job you can imagine now. We don't have
0: good posture. Mm-hmm. We sit there, we lean forward, we're typing mm-hmm. and stuff, okay?
1: So when you have that forward rounded uh, position as a baseline, even if it's very subtle, what it does is it throws your your shoulder mechanics off just enough that there's increased stress on the tendons of the rotator cuff. And what happens over time, you know, this could lead to a tiny little tear that slowly worsens. It could lead to just a tendon that gets beat up and what we could say tendinopathic, which could involve little bits of calcium developing within the tendon. And, you know, many times, you know, with adequate rest and correcting posture, these things are more or less reversible, or at least you can revert back to symptom-free activities of daily living and even sports. But... If you let something like that go on for too long, you know, like you said, you take a bunch of ibuprofen and you continue your sport and you do that for years, by the time you actually see the, the quality of those tendons, you might be in a situation where you need a, a more aggressive intervention just to get you off of depending on medications.
0: So let's talk about the minor situation. A lot of people hear about a condition called, quote, tight shoulder, or you might hear people describe calcific tendinitis, or when their tendons get really tight, what is that condition, and is that a precursor to having more rotator cuff troubles?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's actually not that well understood why calcium does build up in the tendons at the rate it does, because we've seen it happen very slowly, and we've also seen it happen fairly rapidly. And the idea is, at least the, one of the hypotheses is, you know, a little micro tear, pic- picture a big rope that's carrying a lot of stress as it's scraping against uh, a, a wall and you get a little bit of like a micro tear, small tear. And that tear is trying to heal, but in this process of healing, you tear a little uh, another spot that's nearby or this this tear as it starts to heal, you tear it again. So now you're in a situation where you have um your body cells trying to repair tissue that's kind of half healed in some spots not healed in other spots, completely healed in in other spots. So you're getting this mixed, like, mosaic of scar tissue and new injury. So all of that results in increased inflammation that that lingers for longer than it should, longer than is natural because, as we said, inflammation is useful, um, and it becomes a dysfunction. And once that has started, it almost turns into a cascade of more long-term changes to the tendon that can't exactly be undone by your body's natural processes.
0: So it's kind of like a little bit of inflammation, Mm -hmm. getting your body to start the healing process, not bad. Mm -hmm. But when that system goes into overdrive, Mm -hmm. then we could actually cause more harm than good. Correct. When people have situations where they can't fully rotate their shoulder, they can't reach their arm behind them, maybe they're trying to reach the seatbelt, they can't, you mm-hmm. know, get themselves into the car and bring that seatbelt forward like the way they want to. Mm-hmm. Are Is this a sign of something that needs to get checked out immediately? What kind of time frame do we have to really start to have an impact so that someone doesn't need to have those bigger procedures that you alluded sure. to?
1: So I would say, let's say you start off, you have this injury, you start noticing that your shoulder is a little tweaked. Uh, first things to pay attention to things that aggravate it, not only for yourself to try to avoid them but also to report it when you do get evaluated because the better history you can give, the more clear it's going to be, and the quicker we can get you to the next step and so there i can 't even stress how important that value is when you can tell you can tell me exactly what aggravates it and what tends to be a little bit better for it so I would say. At least one week of relative rest, which means rest as well as you can, but be safe. Obviously, if you have to put your seatbelt on, you want to put Please your seatbelt seat on. Please put your seatbelt yeah, on. Yeah, you're, right. you're not avoiding these activities completely, but you are avoiding the ones that really stress the, the joint or or the tendon, and uh, you kind of monitor yourself. You know, are you heading in the right direction, or are you starting to feel like the pain is even spreading? You're starting to get a little bit of neck stiffness are you getting almost like you just don't want to use that arm, and because of that, you almost feel weak in the arm. You know, the red flags to really look for with any pain is neurological function. So intact neurological function tells you that your nerves are functioning fine, so there's, you're not in a situation where there's a herniated disc pushing against a nerve in your neck and causing shoulder pain.
0: So tell me what you mean by neurologic function, because a lot of folks may not understand exactly what that means. Oh, so, you mean the nerves work? Oh, well, I can feel stuff. It hurts. Mm-hmm. So when, when you judge neurologic function, how do you
1: judge it? So it's it's actually, in the exam, it's it's pretty basic from my standpoint. You know, you're looking at your strength, your sensation, and your reflexes. So strength, we know we test a variety of different planes with all the joints within an arm or leg. And there are certain patterns that we know That correlate with different levels in your spine. Because at the end of the day, everything comes from your spine. So all sensation and all motor, meaning your muscle movement, comes from the spine. And so when we see patterns that that fit each other as far as having an area of numbness that also correlates with an area of weakness, that gives us a very high degree of suspicion for a specific lesion in the spine. Um, So for me, my mind's automatically thinking about that as being your not not exactly your worst case scenario, but it being something you want to find early if that is the case.
0: So if someone's at home saying, you know, I feel like my arm is weaker, mm-hmm. and by the way, if I touch it, it feels different Correct. maybe around the wrist than it does in the shoulder, that would be a red
1: flag. That would be a red flag. But knowing that pain can do funny things as well, and you can have that kind of reaction to pain in the first place. So... You, you've you mentioned it many times now, like how long, you know, and that's a great question. And, and I really wish there was easier advice to give to somebody. But I guess what, what a patient should monitor for is does the arm just feel pain, like you know what pain is, the pain that you know, or is it some kind of strange, vague, indescribable feeling that you get, and it, does it not make sense with where you injured yourself? So you have shoulder pain. Uh, which is, you know, the shoulder, the shoulder um, girdle basically is innervated by the C5, six, and c- the C5 and C6 nerves in your neck, but the sensation of that is actually it goes to your fingers, your hand. So it's funny because as a patient, you might say, "Oh, well, yeah, I got a lot of." You know, my shoulder's just weak and I can't move it, and it's weird. My index finger just hurts, and it's like this weird burny type of tingly feeling, and I don't understand why. And that and to you, that makes perfect sense. To, to me, it makes perfect sense, and it's one of those things I want to know right away because I don't want that patient to go and get physical therapy for their shoulder or get some kind of modalities on their wrists, you know, on their because the real problem person. is their neck. Correct. So, so a
0: red flag for the individual is talk to your primary care provider mm. and see a sports medicine. Therapist or a specialist or a therapist or a mm. neurologist or someone beyond that, if you're not getting better, correct? And if you have some of those symptoms,
1: exactly, you have symptoms that don't quite add up in your mind, you know, that's, don't ignore it, don't ignore it.
0: Okay, now, shoulders one area you just alluded to the neck, a lot of people have neck troubles, back troubles. We talk about pinched nerves, we talk about slipped discs. We talk about muscle strain. How do you tell the difference between those different types of injuries or dysfunctions?
1: Mm-hmm. And that's another great question. And you know, we could have hours and hours of discussion between this concept of shoulder versus neck. And same thing happens down low with hip versus spine. And, you know, with the overlap and the proximity of the tissues and, you know, there's some muscles that literally attach, they begin at your neck and they kind of end up Towards the right on your arm. shoulder. Yeah. Sure. So when you have even just an isolated muscle fatigue type of pain, that could mimic an actual more ominous condition. So the assessment, you know, the neuromuscular examination really involves assessing strength, range of motion, individual joints, and then as a collective. So you're, you're really kind of evaluating many things at once. But as a As a broad screen, like for internists or even for patients themselves, you know if you pay attention to your body and your strength and and you're able to tell when you when something hurts and you don't want to move it the difference between that and simply being unable to move something you know there's a big difference there, and it's not always that easy to to differentiate the two, but if there's any question, it's probably time to see somebody
0: well, and I always tell folks that. You know, sometimes people will come in and they'll have shoulder troubles, and I'll say, "You know what, we've really got to look at your neck." And they're like, "Why? My neck feels fine." Mm-hmm. And it's because the description of how they've they've brought up this shoulder discomfort may in fact not involve any range of motion loss. They can move their, you know, move their arms up above their head, turn it behind, twist it in front of them, et cetera. It's actually something that seems to be more related to either the muscles or, in fact, a pinched nerve. And more often than not, I'll find something in the nerve area and I'll Mm -hmm. say to someone, your shoulder looks fine and they're surprised, Mm -hmm. but then, boy, you have some really significant arthritic or spondylitic changes of the spine. I have a feeling that's the source. When that becomes a situation uh, where people have troubles with really just that entire area around their neck area with maybe there's a slip disc or maybe there's actually a pinched nerve, what can be done for them? Does physical therapy help or do we need to get a little bit more aggressive with different modalities?
1: So I would say that at that point where you've established that the peripheral, meaning the the external objects such as the the, it's not the, the shoulder, shoulder joint. The it elbow, is the neck. The so you've already answered that question. You have a very high de- degree of suspicion that this is coming from your neck. And you have an X-ray to support that, yeah, there's some arthritis in there. So this is where the, the, the difference between getting an MRI and considering more aggressive options and trying physical therapy and going the more conservative route has to do back to that neuro, neuromuscular examination. So if their strength is intact, despite being painful, if the strength is still there. And it's, you know, the best way to really judge strength is, especially when it's a one-sided problem, is just comparing to the other side. Because there's always that difference in in every patient. You know, some people just have a stronger uh, proximal body, like your shoulders, your girdles, while your distal, like your hands, your wrists, your fingers are just weaker. And that might be their normal. And, you know, reasons for that difference might be a whole other conversation with the patient. But for the purpose of that diagnosis to be established, you basically do a, a side-to-side comparison of every joint and every muscle group in, in the in the arm or the leg, and if you're more or less symmetrical, your sensation is more or less working completely fine and symmetrical, and your reflexes are more or less the same, then you're probably safe to start off with some safe, you know, careful exercises, and that's where a physical therapist should be there to. Guide you and and direct it and observe to make sure that, the, that there is no form or activity that may actually worsen the problem.
0: So, if you're not having muscle weakness, if you're not having sensory loss, mm-hmm. if you're not having reflex issues, which you would have tested because you, you have, probably yeah. can't test your own reflexes, Correct. then life is good. Do some PT. Do some and if PT. you are, we'll come back in just a minute and talk about what what the reason would be to do further advanced testing. Mm -hmm. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Kieran Vidada. He is a sports medicine specialist joining me at Straub Medical Center and today we are talking about different types of musculoskeletal issues. We talked about the shoulder when we come back in just a few short minutes. We're going to talk some more about the neck and we're going to go further down the spine to find out how do different things manifest in your low back versus what might happen in your neck area. They're similar but there's differences as well. As always, our show is your show and you can join us at 941-3689. Toll free, Neighbor Islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us.
1: It's a grim but simple formula.
0: In some parts of the country, rents are rising faster than wages, which means evictions are
1: on the rise as well. It takes a good amount of time, right, and money to establish a home, and eviction can just delete that.
0: I'm Kai Rizdahl, going on nine years since the foreclosure crisis, and we are still not out
1: of the woods. The story next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, right after The body Show. H.P.R.'s Radio Flyers Program extends your aloha for the station to another worthy community organization. Make your year-end gift to H.P.R. and for every dollar you donate, we'll transfer 10 Hawaiian miles to Kapi'olani Medical Center. The dollars support H.P.R.'s programming and operations. The miles benefit neighbor island patients with financial need. Spread the aloha with Radio Flyers. It's easy from H.P.R.'s website or call our offices during business hours. Mahalo. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Straub Clinic and Hospital.
0: Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Kieran Vedada. He's a sports medicine specialist at Straub, and we're talking today about what happens to our joints and what happens when is pain a problem and when is pain just a sign to take it easy for a little while and how long is too long before you get some of those joint aches and pains checked out. Now, before the break, we were talking a little bit about what are some of the things you can do if you have maybe a pinched nerve of your neck. And we've talked about how if you don't have a muscle issue, if you don't have a sensory issue, if you check in to see your provider and your reflexes are equal and they're symmetric on both your right and left side, you probably can do some physical therapy. But for some folks, there are some signals that would suggest maybe they need to be more aggressive. And we sort of alluded to the idea of doing advanced diagnostic testing, Dr. Vidatta, MRIs, etc. So if somebody has... One side that is weaker, and whether it be their dominant or non-dominant side, or maybe they have altered sensation that you really can identify in the office, and or their reflexes are different, that might lead you to want to do further testing. What kind of testing
1: would you want to do? So that would be an MRI. And, you know, every time I'm even thinking about ordering an MRI or a CT or any kind of advanced testing, The real question you have to answer first is, what are you going to do differently about it? So sometimes, you know, someone may have some weakness, some sensory loss, but overall they're sleeping okay, they're functioning fine, it's kind of a nag, and it's something that's not gone away, but it's not necessarily worsening. So that's when I have that conversation with the patient. You know, regardless of what we find on that MRI, I probably want you to do a little bit of physical therapy to begin with. So the key difference there is that, Sometimes that pain is either a, aggravated with activity or it's something that just it just feels ominous. There's something about the picture to me that it's kind of like I'm not I'm not comfortable starting the, an exercise program without knowing the, the degree of the anatomy within the the spine. And you know, it's funny like when you look at the cervical spine for example, one of the things I check for when I'm trying to rule out a cervical disc herniation is is balance. So someone comes in with neck pain maybe some arm pain, and I always check their balance because there's there's some subtle deficits in balance that start to show up, and that could kind of point you towards wanting to get that MRI before starting a, an exercise program. You know, if a herniation is big enough and it's pushing against the spinal cord, You know, you don't exactly want to start... um, You don't want to make that worse. Yeah, absolutely. That could be
0: bad. Now, where would an MRI fit in if you're also looking at other things like nerve conduction studies or muscle studies? Mm
1: -hmm. So nerve conduction studies and and, and muscle studies, so collectively called like an EMG and an NCS, uh, or electrodiagnostic evaluation. Now, when you are having difficulty either pinpointing where the source of the problem is... because know, technically it could be the neck, but it really, even if it looks like a nerve problem, it could be happening anywhere along the course of that nerve. So it could be down at the wrist, it could be the shoulder, the elbow. Um, when you're having difficulty finding that diagnosis, and let's say your MRI shows multi-level problems, and so you're just, you're unable to to figure out, just based on the clinical picture and the physical examination, you're unable to figure out what you do you do need to do next, then uh, the electrodiagnostic the evaluations come in handy for that. The issue with those tests is that they're fairly uncomfortable. You know, this is something that involves electric stimulation, these little shocks. It involves little needles being placed into the muscles. And as thin as these needles are, we have to have patients kind of contract those muscles while they're in there. So I think it's it's kind of a subtle decision you make when you're trying to decide between an imaging modality versus an, a nerve conduction and um, electromyography. And sometimes you're limited by a pacemaker, for example, and you can't, you simply cannot get an, a magnetic resonance imaging. And in that case, you may go early to the nerve conductions and, and the muscle myography.
0: Well, and it certainly sounds like, you know, a lot of times I'll tell folks, if we did an MRI of everyone's spine, if we just lined up 100 people and said, we're going to MRI 100 people, We would probably find significant problems on fifty percent of them. Yeah, so and yet they wouldn't have any symptoms associated (laughs) with what we saw in the MRI. So, anatomic things Mm -hmm. may be different than functional things. Correct. And when you do an anatomic study, like an MRI or like an X ray or something where you're checking anatomy, that's not necessarily going to tell you does it work. Mm -hmm. So you may need a functional study if there's still a question.
1: That's a much better way of putting it than I just did. Well,
0: no, I mean, because this is what I'll tell people. And, Mm -hmm. you know, often I'll say because, you know, just because it looks good doesn't mean it works good. I mean, there's a lot of people that look great and you meet them and they're not so nice. And you're like, oh, no. Mm -hmm. So we can't judge just looking at your neck by that MRI. We can't judge that book by its cover. So in that situation, this applies not just to the neck, but also to the low back as well. Because, again, there's a lot of people that can have slipped disc, arthritis, Mm. different findings on the lower back, similar to what we might find on the neck, and yet have no symptoms at all. Mm -hmm. Be able to go about their day, do all their exercises, do their activities, and yet you look at an x-ray or an MRI of their back, and you're like, I don't know how this guy is walking. And then you see him run past you, and you're like, this is amazing. (laughs) So... Not all findings on radiology studies actually correlate with symptoms.
1: Oh, yeah. In my training, you know, they always had that saying, don't treat the imaging, treat the patient. And so it it, it kind of like anything we discuss always circles back to how's your strength, how's your sensation, how are your activities of daily living. And we, we never get carried away from something we see because, like you said, I've seen that so many times also. And it really is remarkable. And I, I suspect that when the change happens suddenly, like a disc herniates, you know, there's a lot of inflammation that happens, there's a lot of trauma to structures in the area, and so that's the acute phase of the injury. And then over time, when that stabilizes, your body basically learns to live with that different anatomy, and so you don't necessarily develop symptoms just by something being pinched. So it's it's pretty remarkable that your body does have a me- mechanism by which it it copes with situations like this, the the problems happen when there's a chronic instability or a re-injury where your body's not able to establish that foundation again.
0: Now, in certain situations when people may have a problem on their MRI, and maybe it does correlate with exactly where they're having symptoms, whether it be in their neck area, whether it be in their middle back or their low back, there's different types of things that can be done for them. Medication can be given. Physical therapy can be done. But then there's also certain things that can be done to help not just diagnostically but also therapeutically for their back in terms of injections. Mm -hmm. What sorts of things can be done if someone is having discomfort and maybe it could be surgical but maybe they don't want to go down that route Mm -hmm. or maybe it's not bad enough to be surgical? What else can be done for them?
1: So uh, there's a variety of uh, procedures that are done for this that involve very thin needles that are advanced under x-ray guidance so it's as far as safety and efficacy these are very good and good procedures but they do come with some risk you know and if you read about them it might scare you out of doing them but in reality it's kind of like if if you were buying a car and every time the salesman told you you might die driving this car you might think about the whole process differently so in reality the the chances of something going wrong is very low and the Potential benefits can be very high depending on the patient. So the value of doing an injection is, A, it establishes a diagnosis because you're putting a small amount of medication right to the area that you believe is the problem, and that could be a joint. It could be a nerve outside a joint. It could be a nerve that's a little deeper in your epidural space, and once you get that information as far as how the patient felt immediately after the injection and how they felt Several days following up to their follow-up visit, you get a lot of um, perspective as far as what we can expect to happen as we try to treat. And sometimes you end up saying, you know, this whole thing is probably not something that can be treated interventionally. Well, other times you, you say, well, look, it looks like there was maybe a small component coming from that area, but this turned out to be something else that doesn't typically present this way. So you're gathering information while you're potentially providing therapeutic relief as well. And, you know, a lot of times people ask me, well, how long is it, how long does it last? You know, and that's, that's a good question, you know. And the point to, to understand is that the injection itself is not going to heal anything. It's not going to fix anything. It's not going to accelerate healing either. But what it does is it gives your body the break it needs from an area that's just chronically painful, sore, irritated, and the muscles around there start to tighten up, and you create all this kind of a chain reaction of dysfunction. And by cutting that off at the source, even for uh, several weeks, sometimes that's enough to kind of get people through that hump and restore sleep and restore normal function in the area, and then slowly start to kind of get the condition to stabilize.
0: So it's sort of a temporizing measure. Mm-hmm. So we talk about people who get injections of numbing medicine, mm-hmm. lidocaine, etc., and people who get injections of steroids. Mm-hmm. You can have either or a lot of times in combination. Right. And that particular type of injection might be able to help you get through that acute episode where you've got all the inflammation and pain enough that maybe you can do the exercise you need to do. Exactly. Maybe you can work on doing the stretches or whatever is required to help those muscles to start regain function. And in the meantime, then you don't have to suffer while your body's trying to heal. Mm -hmm. Your body's healing, and simultaneously, you're doing something about this process. So it could work. In some cases, people say, hey, I got a steroid injection of my back or my neck. Everything's better. My symptoms don't come back. And I've started physical therapy, and I've done these other things to help myself. And in other cases, they say it worked great for three weeks and— then it all came back. And for those people for whom they have repetitive discomfort, they may, in fact, need to have something further done. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is a surgical issue, or maybe there's something else that can be done for them. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like it's a, good, it's a good way, if you need to, to get a diagnosis, but also try a therapy. And if that works great, hey, you're good. And if it doesn't, you know you need to do something else.
1: Yeah, Exactly. And at the most important part, again, it comes back to establishing a diagnosis that you're confident about because there's just so much overlap. And when you start going in the wrong direction and then, you know, so one person may say something and somebody else may say something else because people have different experiences, um, the whole picture can get clouded. So there's nothing more important than establishing a focused diagnosis.
0: Knowing what's wrong to begin with. Mm-hmm. Because once you know that, then you have a little bit better direction as to what types of therapies might be helpful or effective. Are there things coming down the pike that might be you know we've talked we talk about joint problems, and so we're going to get to like knees and hips in just a few moments, but some of the things that we've discovered over the past decade or so is that injecting certain things like synthetic cartilage or other types of treatments may actually help joints to recover and stabilize. Are we doing any of that for the spine, or is that still too risky of an area to start experimenting just yet?
1: You know it's not so much the risk because you know my training and people who do what i do we're trained to deliver a medication to an area that is a risky area but there's a reason why we do hundreds and hundreds of these procedures before we are, we start doing them you know without supervision and it's not so much the risk of delivering a medication to an area like the spine it's more do we know it's going to work and these are things that are not covered by insurance you know it's the platelet rich plasma and you know, you may hear about various different forms of stem cell that can be derived from bone marrow or from fat, and you know, there is a lot of people out there who will claim that that is the way to go. And you know, I, I want to believe it, and I do believe it to a certain degree. Even me myself, I've had PRP done on my elbow for a golfer's elbow. I don't play golf, but it's it's the condition, and it worked, and it really did do the job for me after I had done all the conservative management I could, but. I can't quite tell somebody that this is definitely the way to go for your spine. But I'm very optimistic about continuing to gather the evidence. And once I feel that there's a little more certainty, you know, hopefully it's something we'll be offering in the near future. And, I, you know, theoretically for me, when you have a degenerated disc, I think that's an ideal place to inject a regenerative uh, modality to try to rebuild some of that tissue matrix
0: well because we've we've certainly seen it happen in knee joints and we've seen it happen in other locations, I think you know unfortunately, once you have a problem, we have to accept the fact that we're not going to be twenty forever, and as we get older, things are going to change in our bodies. But if there is a way to go ahead and sort of preserve our level of functioning for longer that's that's going to be everybody's everybody's mm-hmm. wish now with the spine, physical therapy becomes a huge aspect no matter what that you find, really, to help your body to be able to strengthen your core. We talk about core strengthening, abdominal strengthening, lower back strengthening, to be able to do things to help support the spine so you don't always have that constant stress Mm -hmm. on the body. Because I can't... I'll be honest, I really... I can't think of any condition for which physical therapy would not be a good idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe if you broke a bone. All <laughs> right, I just thought of one. <clears throat> but for most situations, muscle injuries, if you have a disc, even a disc that is ruptured but doesn't require surgery, people often underestimate the value of doing targeted repetitive exercise to strengthen muscle groups to try and get better. And I often find myself telling telling people who see me, it's not just that we're not going to do studies. It's that you might cure yourself by doing therapy. There is a purpose to doing this. There is a goal that is set. And you may achieve that without even needing to do anything else. Do you find you have the same problems with the encouragement towards doing therapy?
1: I think you hit it right on the nail as far as, you know, I think when somebody comes in and they don't know what's wrong and they you're telling them to go exercise and strengthen it, it just feels like an incomplete picture. So when you assess them, when I when I assess them or when we do it, you're reassuring that there are no red flags. That's kind of what you're always looking for. And once you've established that there isn't anything ominous in your opinion, no matter what the source of the pain is, even if you don't even have a diagnosis, but you know that there's nothing kind of scary feeling about the, the situation, strengthening the muscles that surround the area of pain is the number one goal. So it, it comes back to that almost always. And that's something that I can't even emphasize enough. And I often try to um, bring it up in almost every meeting I have with a patient because it's even when they're better, you know, it's if you keep those muscles strong and you try to keep that area flexible, you're going to do the best you can to offset some of the stresses that are going to have to go across this area of impairment. And no matter what the diagnosis or the future com- brings as far as this condition goes, if you strengthen the muscles and you condition the tissues around, you're going to increase your chances of, of of avoiding re-injury. And that's, the maintain, goal. that's always the goal. Yeah.
0: All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Kieran Vidata from Sports Medicine Specialist at Straub Clinic and Hospital. And before we go to our break, I want to give everyone an update. Our radio flyers campaign lifted off today. We have $7,280 to go to make our first matching gift of $10,000 from Dr. Tom Kosasa. Right now, your year end donation could be doubled then multiplied again when we transfer 10 Hawaiian miles for every dollar that's given to Kapilani Medical Center for Women and Children's Family Fund. Those miles will help neighbor island families to and from Honolulu so that they can be with their hospitalized young child. You can donate online at hawaiipublicradio.org or you can call 808-955-8821 before the end of the day. You'll be making spirits brighter, including your own. Again, donations of any amount are welcome to the HPR website and on the phone. And you can help us by calling our Honolulu office or going online. Again, 955-8821. When we come back from the break, we're going to be talking again with Dr. Vidada. And we're going to be going through the other joints of the body that often cause troubles. Hips and knees, ankles and toes. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us.
1: On the next humankind... The better your focus, the better your concentration, the better able the cortex, the thinking brain, is able to operate. Your senses are sharp, your thinking is clear, and so you're really perking along. The importance of focus and how easily we can lose it. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. This evening at 6.30, right after Marketplace. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. Not the kind of
0: future most of us want to contemplate, so why aren't Maui's wellheads better protected? We'll talk with Sierra Club and Maui Board of Water Supply member Lucien Dene, and choreographer Septim Weber will give us a peek behind the curtain of the newly reimagined Nutcracker set in the 1858 Kingdom of Hawaii. We'll talk tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation.
1: Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Kaiser Permanente and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company.
0: Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Kieran Vidyadeh. He's a sports medicine specialist at Straub Clinic and Hospital. And today we're talking a little bit about Arthritis, orthopedic injuries, pinched nerves, you name it, we have got the guy here who's explaining all, not just to those people who are listening, but, hey, you're also helping me out as well. So a lot of people might have done the marathon yesterday. Kudos to you if you did. And sometimes people, the day after they do an athletic event like that, might have troubles with other joints. Let's talk a little bit about hips, and then we'll talk a little bit about knees. Because when you do an activity where you might use a lot of your body just to be able to cross the finish line, uh, sometimes people will have problems like bursitis or tendonitis and various different joints of their body hurt let's start with the hips. What are the common things that can happen to hips and what can we do about it?
1: So hip hip pain is um, really a a difficult uh, thing to kind of get a grip on for most people because there's really no way to avoid using your hip. It's part of your core. So you could be laying in bed and just changing positions and that could be excruciating. So um, a lot of times with hip, you you have to look at inside the joint versus outside the joint. And there's multiple structures in both categories that could be injured in something like a marathon. So, you know, I know they're running on on gravel many times and running on tar Yeah, tar concrete, you name concrete. it, sure. So anytime you're you're having a repetitive impact uh, activity like that, that shock is going right up through your toes, your ankles, knees, hips, spine, all the way up to your cervical spine really. So that's a tremendous amount of impact for your body to take in multiple different locations at the same time. So there's going to be a significant generalized stiffness, achiness. You know, there's going to be some muscle fatigue as well as joint fatigue. Um, the hip is more or less central to that with running. But the good thing with runners, they tend to be in, in great shape as far as their core and their pelvic girdle is concerned. So a lot of times they, they've, they're already... To be at that extreme of an athlete, you've already optimized your mechanics to the point that you're limiting the amount of direct impact that that joint is taking. So I would imagine a lot of guys get bursitis on the outside of the hip. You know, you have your glutes that kind of come across the side, you know, that bone that sticks out on the side of your your hip, you know, that's a common place to get both uh, uh, they call it a trochanteric bursitis. It's A better name really would be a greater trochanteric pain syndrome because the pain is not necessarily coming from the bursa that sits there, but it could be coming from the actual tendons and the muscles that they connect with. So there's your gluteus, medius, and minimus muscles particularly that, are, that contract when you raise your, your leg away from you. They also contract when your other opposite leg is in the air because they have to kind of stabilize your pelvis and keep it from tilting. So running is an activity where both of these are going on and off continuously. Um, other than that, the actual iliopsoas, which is one of the huge muscles that is a hip flexor, and it kind of crosses right down the front of the hip joint. And a lot of runners will get what's known as an iliopsoas tendinopathy or an iliopsoas bursitis, where you'll have pain kind of in that groin region. So those are two pretty common things. And then, of course, there's your hamstrings, which bring it to your back your butt kind of your sit bone and um uh, just when you do something that's so long and uh an endurance based activity no matter how much you optimize your muscles you're you're at risk for causing maybe a small tear micro tear just strain inflammation any combination of those things um so the the period after such an event is is key you know you really have to give your body the adequate hydration and the adequate rest and not particularly, you know, I know a lot of athletes who will go ahead and load on NSAIDs afterwards because the amount of taxation that 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 activity does on their body is just, it's just so vast and you're just non-functional afterwards. Um, I'm not a fan of that, but I also understand that you had a goal, you wanted to do that activity, you did it, and now you have to be (laughs) somewhat, (laughs) controlled you
0: have to be able to get to the bathroom you know you've got to be able to get up off the couch and go when you need to go particularly Mm -hmm. if you're hydrating like you should Mm -hmm. so if you need to take medicine like anti-inflammatories to be able to do those activities of daily living okay Mm -hmm. but maybe don't do it continuously or be very careful because those medications can go through the kidneys and cause trouble too.
1: Exactly. And after a marathon, you know, your muscles will have broken down to a certain degree, and so there's muscle products, byproducts that are coming out and filtering through your kidneys, which could damage things and then add anti-inflammatories to that, you're you're kind of asking for it. So that's where that hydration comes in very, very importantly.
0: So if you have hip troubles, it could be from the running. What about you know, people talk about having problems with labral tears. Mm-hmm. And that's a term that, you know, maybe not a lot of people are familiar with. But there there are some things that can actually happen in the hip joint mm-hmm. that it's not like you need a hip replacement. But you may still need to do some type of procedure to fix it. Mm-hmm. Are those common?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, it's the the hip and the shoulder, actually. They're these ball and socket joints. You know, there's a socket... That has that's covered with cartilage. There's the the ball, the head of the ball, that's covered with cartilage, and then there's a sleeve that kind of fits the, the ball in the socket and kind of keeps it there and cushions some of the impact. And that's your labrum, um, and that's it exists both in your shoulder and in your hip. And something you know, the correlation to that would be kind of like your meniscus in your knee. So this is a fibrocartilaginous structure that acts as a sleeve to both brace some of the impact and also contain the the pieces and the parts together to keep them in a proper congruous relationship with each other. So a labral tear can mean many things. You know, it could be a small tear, it could be a degeneration where it's just kind of frayed. It could be, or it could be something where much larger than that, where there's a piece or a flap that's almost hanging off and causing disruption to the joint. So. A lot of times for labral tears, you know, the first steps again always the rice the rest ice. You can't quite compress in, in a labral tear, but you just want to avoid activities. And as things progress, you know, some sometimes if it's it's excruciating, you're trying to establish a diagnosis again, a diagnostic injection in there to to confirm the source of pain, because a labral labral tear won't show up on your x-ray. Your x ray might show you a perfectly healthy hip joint. So a diagnostic, ex- uh, diagnostic injection or an MRI would actually reveal that pathology. And so when once you find that, then I often rely on my surgical counterparts to go in there. You know, I'm not a fan of injecting steroids into any kind of soft tissue injury.
0: So in that case, you would need to do something further. Mm-hmm. So it... Gets us to the last joint, which I think is one of the most common causes of concern for folks, which is the knees. And, you know, a lot of times people will say, but my x ray looks normal, so there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. But in fact, x rays show bones. Correct. And it might show you arthritis in the bone structure, a little bit of wearing, wear and tear on those bones, a little wearing down. But it's not necessarily going to be able to tell you if you have a meniscal tear or a ligament tear or some other sort of soft tissue injury. Mm -hmm. Knee problems are common. What are the most common things that you see in people who have knee troubles who maybe have a normal x-ray?
1: So oftentimes I find myself always trying to answer that question. Is it coming from inside the joint or outside the joint? And one of the greatest things I have at my disposal is the use of a diagnostic ultrasound machine. So this is a machine that uses no radiation. Um, it's something that can be just put on the patient. You can actually so it's in your office. In you're the in room, there. oh you yeah. can
0: do it in the exam room.
1: I, I never not have it in my room, more or less, and it it serves as an extension of my physical exam, really, and it allows me to test in a way that is much more advanced than any kind of imaging that I can order because I can actually recreate the motion that hurts. So when a patient tells me that they bend this certain way and you feel a little snap here and it always hurts, you literally put the probe on and have them do it. And you can see the tissues and how they move in relation to each other. And you can tell if there's an abnormality there or not. And so with the knee, you can even see the meniscus. Even though the meniscus is is sitting inside the joint, you can see enough of its periphery to point you towards a situation where you know suspicion is low it's more of a ligamentous injury that's above that outside of the joint or you see something that tells you you know what i really am concerned about something going on inside so let's get that mri or let's if it's really that bad or, and the patient debilitated might even go straight to a surgery for a scope so with with the knee joint, a lot of the common things I see, I mean, patellofemoral pain is one. That's probably one of the most common conditions. It just has to do with the way your kneecap kind of glides across the bones under it. And when you have a little imbalance with your muscles that could even be up at your hip, you, that imbalance will will cause pain that could f- be very severe at times. Um, other than that, there's always the ligaments on the outside. On either side, there's your medial collateral ligament and your lateral collateral ligament. And so... I. Your exam helps you determine these these sources of pain, but then that ultrasound machine really helps you rule out tears. Um, And a common thing with runners, again, is your ITB, your iliotibial band, and that starts up at your hip and your gluteal muscles, and it comes down and attaches past your knee. So oftentimes runners will get this kind of bow stringing across the, the side of your knee that could be very painful as well. It's not always easy to differentiate.
0: And so that's the tool of the diagnostic ultrasound something that you know maybe 10 or 15 years ago we didn't really do as much mm-hmm. at all but now some of the and I and I've seen the diagnostic ultrasound in use the key is that like MRIs or X-rays you got to stay still and they say don't move and then when you do something like the ultrasound in the office it's, you're able to see stuff when someone moves. Mm-hmm. So it provides that more functional assessment of when I move my knee this way or wherever it might be, this is what I feel. You can actually physically see it and then it can help you to differentiate between this is something that can require rest, compression, elevation, however that may take place, mm-hmm. or maybe anti-inflammatories, or maybe this is someone who needs a surgery. When do we start to inject things like steroids and, and synthetic cartilage in to the knee. Under what situation might that be the most appropriate treatment?
1: So once you've gone through the primary modalities and you've done the adequate rest, for me, when I try to decide whether I want to put in a steroid, if there's a significant amount of fluid that's built up within the joint, you know, I often like to drain it out using the ultrasound guidance. And if the fluid itself looks a little strange, I'll, I'll send that for lab studies more often than not, it's normal joint fluid that's just accumulated because of all the wear and tear and maybe the battery that that joint has, has undergone recently. So in those cases, just putting a little bit of steroid in there can do wonders as far as getting through that flare-up and calming things down. But then you start to go back to the whole the tendency to repeat it because it works so well. And if you do that too much, you're going to actually start to damage that cartilage. So it's always, you you know, as as the person doing the injection, there's always a perspective you have to keep in mind of, and when's the last time we did it, or when's the last time anyone did anything to you with steroids. And so we keep track of how much has a certain body part been exposed to steroids, in addition to how much has your body in general been exposed to steroids. And, you know, I think there's various levels of conservative uh, approaches versus more aggressive ones, but... We tend to be more on the conservative side at Straub, and I find myself discussing dosages with my colleagues all the time. And we always seem to want to go to the lower end of it, Um, and I think that's that's a good thing. I think that's the right direction.
0: Well, and there's consequences to steroids. I mm-hmm. mean, in your case, you may use them injected to a particular site and maybe see an acceleration of damage if they're used too much. Yeah. If, In my perspective, if we give it in pills, then we see the other complications, including problems with with people retaining water, weight gain, unable to sleep, increased sugars, changes in bone metabolism. There's a lot of things that can happen if you're on steroids and pill versions too much, much less if you get it in an injectable format Mm -hmm. to a localized area. But what you're saying is if somebody says, boy, that injection made me feel great, that doesn't mean you should keep getting those. It means that, man, that's great that it made you feel good, but let's not put you in that position. We might actually cause more harm than good. Correct. Anytime we go into a joint space there is that potential that we can cause a reaction that the body naturally has anytime there's been a needle or fluid or something that can actually lead to bigger problems down the road mm-hmm.
1: and you know and even most times it's something that you it leads to maybe more of an irritation and a and a like like you sp- you spoke about synthetic injectates and that's you know hy- hyaluronic acid which is a synthetic version of the of the joint fluid that your body's supposed to create and yeah, like you said, your body may reject the synthetic fluid and put you in a lot of pain, and it can feel almost as bad as an infection. It's not quite an infection, but it feels like one, and it becomes a nightmare for the both the the provider and the patient. Uh, but that's a very rare thing to happen. You know, more often than not, it's 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 something that you can do safely per, as long as the person who's doing it is really judicious about how often and for what indication.
0: And is there ever a time when you've had too many? I mean, it used to be like Synvisc a few years back Mm with sort of a a course of three injections, and it was expected that you would do those over the course of maybe 18 months or so, and you would potentially be able to to feel or notice some relief. Mm -hmm. But now I see sometimes people are getting injections much more than three, much more frequent than every few months. Is there a limit? How much is too much?
1: You know, when it comes to steroids, I think there's more of a limit. When it comes to something like a synthetic hyaluronic acid, theoretically, you're putting a pretty neutral substance in, and provided your your technique is sterile and you're not injecting into the wrong place, I really don't know of any maximum dose. So we tend to follow insurance guidelines with that, and more importantly than that, we tend to follow what are we actually getting out of it. So, Make sure there's a benefit. Yeah. So if a, if a patient's getting one month of significantly improved con- functionality from that, to me, it's worth doing that. And And usually the insurance limitations are you can only repeat it every six months.
0: So but physically, they could get it more often. They may have to pay for it themselves. But mm-hmm. if it does yeah. help them to work on doing the exercises, often I think of those sorts of things as a bridge. If -hmm. you can bridge to getting yourself to the point where your body can tolerate doing more muscle-strengthening exercises to stabilize your joint, then it served its purpose because now you can do the exercises to really get those super strong joints by improving your quadriceps or your hamstrings or your low back or your core, whatever particular area of the body that might be involved. Absolutely. So it really, the crux of the situation is don't wait too long. If you have trouble and it's starting to cause weakness or weird symptoms of nerve pain or some kind of tingling, get it checked out. And do physical therapy if indicated. Don't be afraid of that. Mm -hmm. But then also do check in and see a specialist if you're not getting better because there may be some things they can do for you that'll help to get you a more specific diagnosis. But in addition. They may be able to help you guide your therapy to doing things so that you can regain function and feel better overall.
1: Absolutely. And I actually wanna also you just reminded me of one last thing. With therapy, if you feel like it's hurting you, don't feel like it's a boot camp that you have to go through before you ask to see the specialist.
0: Very important point. Mm-hmm. Don't hurt yourself and make it worse. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I can't believe the time has flown. We are going to have to have you back on again soon. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links and hear our podcast. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Bethan Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Another enjoyable show. We will see you here next week, right here live on Monday on The Body Show. We'll see you then. Woo!